Well, it's uh, been a few weeks, but we're going to jump back in tonight in our series in First John. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. Oh, Lord, I just thank you again for this evening, and thank you for your love for us, and thank you for these words that the Apostle John wrote to the Christians, God, that he was trying to strengthen and encourage, and I pray that even now, 2,000 years later, as we read the words of this Apostle, that our hearts would be strengthened and encouraged by these divinely inspired words that he wrote, not just to them, but to us, as we await God, your coming back for us. So bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And... The sermon title this more, this evening is The Hour of the Antichrist. The Hour of the Antichrist. Um, we're going to learn more about John's understanding of uh, the Antichrist. And I apologize ahead of time. It's not going to be as sensational as you might want, want it to be. But um, we are going to talk about John's, uh, what, what he's talking about. But we should acknowledge that really, like in the days of John, we live in dark days. We're going to learn in a little bit that John's understanding of the Antichrist or the spirit of the Antichrist is that of of false teaching. Uh, And false teaching, of course, is nothing new because John was battling it in his day 2,000 years ago. And so likewise, we too live in in dark days, in days of lots of... uh, competing voices. We talked about this morning all kinds of false gospels. And so there's all kinds of things that Satan is throwing at us to distract us from the most important, to, uh, to uh, deceive us as accepting as right and good and true when indeed it is not. And John's uh, earnestness and love for these these Christians that he's writing to is he's pleading with them not to be deceived, to hold fast to the truth. And so that's something we as believers in this age need to be careful to do. So that's what we're going to talk about this evening from our passage in 1 John chapter 2. So if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, 
He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. God's word. You may be seated. So I want to see three truths from our passage tonight. Number one is that we live in the last hour. Number two is that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. And number three is that we know the truth through spiritual anointing. So again, we live in the last hour. Number two, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. And number three, we know the truth through spiritual anointing. So first, we live in the last hour. That's what John says there in verse 18. It is the last hour. Children, it is the last hour. We have to just think about that for a second because it does require some thought. What does John have in mind when he says that it's the last hour? Because when he says it's the last hour, you have to think. It ma- he, makes, he makes the end sound uh, imminent, as if it's just around the corner. If I was telling you that it's the last hour, you would think, okay, something's just about to happen. And if we take it uncritically, we might start to think, as some people have, that, well, maybe just John was mistaken. He was wrong. He thought it was the last hour, and it really wasn't. Because we have to, we have to ask what he means. Because he said it was the last hour, but that was just shy of 2,000 years ago. It's a long time ago. So it's a good question worth investigating, but I think we can come up with the answer pretty clearly. As we have talked about in a previous sermon, John has already mentioned in his letter a related idea, and that is the idea of the changing of the ages. In, in a little bit earlier in chapter 2 in verse 8, he says, At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So in John's mind, so you have to think, in John's mind, we've got to put ourselves in John's head. There are two, he understands that the world that we exist in and live in exists in two ages. There is an age of darkness, if you were, and there is an age of light. And for John, we now live in the overlap of the ages. We live in the overlap of the ages. Why? Because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. So the darkness is still here. But it's in the process of passing away. The light is already shining, but it hasn't yet fully and completely driven away the darkness yet. So John understands then that we as Christians, in terms of the whole scheme of redemptive history and the, and, and, and the plan that God is working, and we must be careful to understand that we're part of that plan, our lives are part of this plan, is that we are living in the overlap of the ages. An era in which the darkness is still here, but it's passing away, and the light is shining, and soon the darkness will be dispelled. 
incredible if you think about it. So by saying that it is the last hour, I do think that John intends to communicate a sense of imminence. That is, that he, wants, he really does want his readers to live as if the end could be at any moment. Because from our perspective, it could be. Because God alone knows the date of the end. We don't. So we must have to, if we're going to be wise, live in, in, in a, with a sense of imminency, a sense of urgency, because we don't know when the end will come. And it could be today. And so I think John does intend to communicate that to his readers by saying it's the last hour because that's the manner in which we are supposed to live in the overlap of the ages. When we live in a season, a time in history in which we don't know when the end could be, but it could be at any moment. And, Jesus, and really all he's doing is following the way that his master, Jesus Christ, taught them. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 42 and following, Jesus taught... Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. What, a, what an amazing parable. It's a perfect illustration of the manner in which Jesus expects us to live as followers of Christ. God has entrusted to us his goods, his properties, his, his people. Right? We are steward. We don't really own anything. We are only stewards of things that God has given to us that we'll have to give an account to him for about what we did with these things. And he is saying that if you're a servant and you think your master's away and that he's not coming back for a long time, you're going to be tempted to get lazy. And think, oh, it's going to be a long time. It's no big deal. I can kind of goof off. Until all of a sudden, you're, in the, you're on the master's couch eating potatoes and there's crumbs everywhere and there's a knock on the door. And it's too late. And he says, blessed then is the servant who is waiting at the door, ready to open when it's, not, when it's knocked on. Who, blessed is the one who the master finds being faithful when he comes. So, and we don't know when that hour will be, so to use Jesus' words, we must stay awake. We can't afford to fall asleep on the job. So Jesus, too, intentionally left his followers with a sense of immediacy and expectancy that today could be the day. Now, the question then is this. Was that somehow misleading or disingenuous on their part to communicate, to give the sense of imminency when in reality it would be a long time? Not at all. Not at all, <clears throat> because that, that's just part of God's plan. He has designed, he's just designed it to be that way. Nobody knew, nobody knew how long the church age would be. That's God's, if God wants to, if God wants it to be a long time, he can do whatever he wants. He's God. The point of the imminency and the urgency is that at the coming of Christ, his coming was the fulfillment of all the redemptive promises of God. It was the decisive uh, action, the decisive victory over sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. 
Jesus is coming, in other words, is the climax of human and redemptive history. And so now that it was, it was, it was that point that everything up to human history, up until the point of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything was waiting for that moment. But now that moment was come, has come. And so now we are simply in a period of waiting, a period of waiting for, uh, for Christ's return. In other words, <clears throat> in other words every, most of the, every fundamental thing that needed to take place before the end to happen has, take, has taken place. And so therefore we don't know when the end will be. <clears throat> and so by saying that saying that it's the last hour, I would say that John wasn't intending to give some type of time frame that it was, that, you know, he, he wasn't trying to put a date on it. That wasn't his point at all. His point was to say that fundamentally everything that needed to happen for the light to conquer the darkness has already happened. And so now we are really in the last stages of redemptive history. We really are. We, we are, even it, it has been going on for 2,000 years, but we are those on whom the end of the ages has come. We really are. And at any moment, the end can come. We can say, and we'll talk about that a little bit more later, but we can say that in one sense, the Antichrist must precede Christ's return. But in our passage here, what John says, he says, You've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And so we, we, so we could say that something that does remain to happen before Christ must come back is for the Antichrist to return. But it gets a little complicated in, in terms of discerning. We still, it still doesn't allow us to really discern a strict timeline because John living 2,000 years ago, says, well, many Antichrists have already come. In other words, there is a spirit, if you will, of the Antichrist that is already at work. And that was really the only remaining thing that needed to happen before Christ's return. And John says that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. And so the point is this. We, what we want to do is we want to put ourselves in the, in, the, in the shoes of those who are hearing this, who are hearing this letter read initially and try to feel the weight of what John is trying to communicate. Imagine that you are one of the earliest Christians. And, and, uh, and this letter, a, a messenger brings this letter to one of your church gatherings and said, Hey, the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus himself, wrote this letter to us. Now I'm going to read it for all of us to hear. And then he begins reading this letter to you. And he writes this, Children, it is the last hour. How do you think you would feel? What do you think that would mean to you? It should mean to us the same thing that it meant to them, to the original hearers who were holding the letter, the very letter penned by John himself and who were reading it publicly to the churches, to w- which is what they would have done. We should feel the weight of this children. It is the last hour. We are those on whom the end of the ages has come. So let us live then with the, the sense of imminency and urgency as those uh, on whom the end has come. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. 
From now on, let those who have wives live as those as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Well, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But it seems to me what Paul is saying is this. He is saying that since we are those on whom the end of the ages have come, we don't live like everybody else lives, right? Remember that Jesus told the parable that, 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 um, that people will be going on, and, or Jesus talked, a parable, but Jesus talked about how in the days of Noah, people were just eating and drinking and doing whatever and just thinking like no big deal, thinking that they'd have another day tomorrow. Well, what all Paul, I think, is really saying is this. Is he's saying, we don't live like that because we know that we might not be here tomorrow. We don't live life as if, as if it's just business as usual. Everything we do, from our business dealings to our marriages, to what we buy, to what we sell, to what we do, everything, it's not that we don't do these things, but everything that we do is in the framework and the understanding that, hey, today might be the day that I'm not going to be caught off guard, that it's not just business as usual, but that I know that this world is passing away and a new world is soon to come. And so every, all the business and all the activity that I do is done with that in mind. And so number one, the point here is this, is that we live in the last hour. Therefore, we must live like it. Number two that we learn from this passage is that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work. The primary reason, in fact, that John gives, saying that we know that it is the last hour because he says that many Antichrists have come. The coming of the Antichrist is one of the preconditions given in the Bible for Christ's return. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers... Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter, seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. <clears throat> and so Paul, like John, says that we are in the last days and in the last hour. Paul, like John, says that the, he calls it, Paul calls it the mystery of lawlessness. He says is what? It's already at work. It's already here. And John saw it too that the anti-Christian spirit was already at work. And so we should acknowledge that the last hour is here. And all that remains is the revelation of the, of the Antichrist. But see, you know, even, even that, Makes it difficult because it would be tempting to say, well, the Antichrist hasn't come yet, so we know Christ couldn't come yet. But the problem, the problem is, is saying that gets a little sticky because we're all bound 
by our time and location in the world and in history. What I mean by that is this. There were other times in other parts of the world and other times in history where believers, like you and I, were sure that, they, that the Antichrist had come. Martin Luther was sure that the Pope was the Antichrist. He, he was sure. Okay? In, in other times in history, people were sure that Hitler was the Antichrist. Let me tell you, he came pretty close. Stalin and others, they, Stalin and, and Pol Pot, they were, people were sure at certain times that these people were the Antichrist. It wasn't long ago, people were sure that Obama was the Antichrist. And some people today think Trump's the Antichrist. In other words, we are bound, we are, very, we are bound, so bound by our location and place in history that it becomes very difficult to say, <clears throat> oh, the Antichrist is there, he's not here yet, and so... We don't know when he comes. It, that just becomes very difficult to say. We shouldn't let speculations about who is and isn't the Antichrist cause us to lose the sense of urgency and imminency that Jesus clearly intended to give to us. And that is that in the end, we don't ultimately know when he could come. And it could be today. And so from this passage, we learn several things that I think is worth mentioning concerning what we might call the spirit of the Antichrist, or what Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness. The first thing we should think about is this, and that is that the spirit of the Antichrist will be present in churches. Think about that for a second. The spirit of the Antichrist will be present in churches, because this is what it says in verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. <clears throat> and, and by the way, that, that verse 19 is, is right on the heels of verse 18 where he says, many antichrists have come. So in other words, John is calling the people who left the church antichrists. <laughs> How'd you like that? Someone called you an antichrist when you left the church. Well, that's what he calls them. John doesn't have a problem about it. He calls them antichrists. <clears throat> he calls him Antichrist. So the person, the thing that we should be aware of then is that according to John, those with the, the spirit of the Antichrist at work in them, or as he calls them, Antichrists, will be present in our churches. That is, that there will be those who are deceived and deceivers within the churches. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us as followers of Christ to know the truth to believe the truth, to be rooted in the word, and to not tolerate false teaching. We cannot, we cannot tolerate false teaching. And John says that the, the, the deceivers and the deceived, that they will be exposed, they will be part. In other words, it will become plain the difference between those who truly know God and those who don't. <clears throat> So, and so we should, we should be aware of this, that the spirit of the Antichrist will be present in churches. And, we should, we should, and as I talked about this morning with all the false gospels, we should be careful to guard the pure doctrine of Jesus Christ. And because a lot of churches didn't do that in the past, they tolerated, they tolerated something that, that... You see, when you tolerate something, eventually those... Those who you tolerate bringing in false teaching, they're going, to, they're going to force you to embrace the false teaching. It always happens. Every time. 
And so there's some things that we just cannot tolerate. And so we must guard the doctrine of the church. That's key. Number two thing we learn about the spirit of the Antichrist is that the spirit of the Antichrist, well, what is it? It is the spirit of the rejection of the truth. It is the spirit of the rejection of the truth. It's clear from what John has said here that anyone who rejects the true gospel, who rejects core and central components of the Christian message, and especially in this passage here in 1 John, who rejects central truths concerning the person, nature, and work of Jesus Christ, That person, John says, is the Antichrist, and the Antichrist spirit is at work in them. And so, for John to to get Christ wrong, to get get who Christ was wrong, it's not just a, a mere mistake. It's a fatal error. And it is related, and it is it is the fruit of the spirit of the Antichrist. I mean, that's what he says. He says. Verse 22, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And so, and so we, we have to get Christ right. And for John, this is not a small thing. And there's all kinds of people who believe some crazy things about Christ. And that's why when, that's why when we... I'm going to get ahead of myself. Though we can't say with certainty in any way what exactly what the heresy was, it seems to be that there is evidence of, the early, of an early heresy that Jesus, the person of Jesus, was not coterminous, if you will, with Christ. And that is that, that, is that Jesus wasn't the Christ in the sense of, in, in, the, in the nature of his being, in the, his whole essence, that he, was, that he wasn't the Christ. They said that the Christ was kind of like, um, it's kind of like a, a power or something that came upon him at his baptism and that was taken away before his death. In other words, Jesus wasn't the Christ in his person. The, the, the Christhood or Christliness or Christness was imbued upon him at his baptism and taken away from his resurrection. It may seem kind of technical to us, but it was as it was denying a central component that Jesus Christ in his essence is the promised one, the Messiah, the eternal son of God, the Christ. Um, As we discussed before, John seems to be combating an early form of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge. And a key part of Gnosticism was that they believed you had to have this secret knowledge, and it could have been this secret knowledge of Christ that, they, that you had to have to really get it, to really understand, to really get it. But regardless of the, the precise error, John's point is this, is that we must get Jesus right, that Jesus is no less than God the Son incarnate. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on flesh to fulfill every promise of God and forever remains in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ who is the King and Lord of all. He is the consummate revelation of the Father unto the very point in which Jesus could tell Thomas, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so any Jesus less than the Jesus of Scripture is a Jesus that cannot save. And so again, sometimes these discussions seem very technical, but they are so important. Because why? Because Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was created. 
Mormons say that Jesus is the Son of God in a literal sense and not in a divine sense. And there are many others. Uh, Muslims say that Jesus was just a prophet. All kinds of people deny all kinds of things about the nature and the person of Christ. And uh, and any, any Christ less than the true Christ cannot save. And that's what John is saying. That we must guard the true nature of Christ. We must embrace the true Christ. We must beware false teaching. We must beware TV preachers. We must beware Oprah-esque spirituality and religious bestsellers and read the scriptures and give ourselves to understanding the whole counsel of God's word so that we can discern truth from error. So number one, we live in the last hour. Number two, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work already now that we must beware And number three, we know the truth through spiritual anointing. We know the truth through spiritual anointing. In verse 20 and 21 here, it says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then he goes on um, in verse 24 and says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And then finally, in verse 27, he says, The anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so, as we, as we just talked about, these false teachers claim to have this kind of special knowledge. You have to know this special truth about Jesus to be on the real spiritual in crowd, to really get it. And so what John, and perhaps it was that, that I mean, that these, these other Christians, they were, they were a little thrown off. They were a little not sure what to think. Nobody wants to be in the out crowd, Nobody, if there's a secret being passed around, you want to you be one who knows it. You don't want to be left out, right? If there's something I can know that kind of takes me to the next level, then I want to know it. But John is throwing them off a little bit. But John writes to them and he says very plainly, you already know the truth. It's already in you. You already know it. And you already have the anointing. It may have, we don't know this for sure, but it may have been that these, these antichrists, these false teachers, were talking about some kind of secret anointing that kind of takes you to the next level or secret knowledge. And perhaps John is playing on that and saying, you already have the anointing. The anointing of the Holy One. Now, what is this anointing? I think most likely the anointing John is talking about is talking about the Holy Spirit. That we have been anointed with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10.38, it says this. It says how, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so, we have, we, so I believe that he's talking about that we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he says we have been anointed by the Holy One. So... The Holy One there could just refer to the Holy Spirit in order to identify the anointing with the Holy Spirit. Or I think possibly even more likely the, anoint, the Holy One refers to Christ. Because Christ is the one who anoints us with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, 
but there is one who's coming after me who's greater than me. He, ba- he will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in John 16, 7, it says this. It says, ne- Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So we receive, so the Spirit, the reason why Jesus had to go is because by going, he now sends the Spirit to us. And so Jesus is the one who sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it is the Spirit, it is the Spirit who gives us spiritual life. It is the Spirit who gives us spiritual light. It is the Spirit who gives us spiritual wisdom and insight and understanding of the Scripture so that we can know the truth. That's what Jesus said in John 16, 12. It says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Think about that. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Then what's the next verse? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus had things to tell them, but he couldn't tell them yet. Why? Because they couldn't handle it. Why couldn't they handle it? Because they had not yet received the Spirit in in His fullness. But when the Spirit come in its fullness to rest upon them and upon their lives, then they would be able to receive the fullness of the truth, the fullness of teaching. And so I think that's what John is talking about, that we have been anointed. So if we have the Spirit... If we have the Spirit, then we don't need special knowledge. If we have the Spirit, we don't need some kind of special revelation. The heretics were saying that we needed some kind of false knowledge. And John says, no, not at all. That that we already know the truth. That we already know the truth. And we know it because the Spirit has revealed it to us. And this is, it's just, it's just really important to kind of emphasize this. Because I was listening the other day to uh, a podcast about cults, which is very fascinating. And they were saying that one of the primary tools of cults is to appeal to some kind of special revelation or, or special knowledge. Because think about it. If someone, if someone comes up to you. And says, hey, God told me this. Or an angel came to me and told me this. You know, if, if, they, if they're really type of persuasive, charismatic person, which cult leaders are, by the way, then it's very tempting to say, hey, this guy knows something I don't. This guy has some kind of connection with God that I don't. He's having experiences that I don't. He's close to God in a way that I'm not. I want that. I want to be part of that. I want to have that. And that's one of the, that's one of the primary tools that cults use is to draw people in. Is because we want to be in the in crowd. We don't want to be in the out crowd. We want to have this special and this secret knowledge. And so John, over and against all these things, is saying, you already have everything that you need. You have the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit guides us into all truth. That's why... That's, and that's why I just truly believe <clears throat> that, you see, when the Spirit is in you, the Spirit confirms to you the truth 
that is in the scriptures. So that when you hear, when you hear the, the truth of the scriptures proclaimed, because guess who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit. So if the Spirit is in you and you hear the Spirit proclaimed in truth, there's something deep down in you that says, that's right. And then there's also at the same time, if someone comes into you talking about some other you know, shenanigans and junk, there's something, you, you might not even be able to point to Scripture and verse, but deep down you say, oh, something, something's not right. You just kind of feel it. That's the Spirit. That's the Spirit that's teaching you, that's guiding you, that's giving you this sense of discernment. And of course, I'm not saying that, I mean, that we can be more or less mature. I'm not saying that that's not true. But there is the Spirit that guides us and leads us into all things. That is the, the thing, that, the one who enables us to know the truth. And the final thing here is this, is what is this truth that they already know? What is, and that, that, this is the real key. In, in verses 24 and 25, he says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And so, what is it that the Spirit is teaching and affirming in us? He's affirming in us the same message that we've known about and had all along. In other words, this is something that I think makes Christianity quite distinct from other religions. Is that in most other religions, you know, there, there's deeper stuff that you kind of get to the further along you're in. And the more deeper stuff you get into, kind of the next, you, you get to the next level. But you see, really, Christianity's not like that. We don't keep back the best stuff for later until you're really initiated and then we give you the goods. Okay, that's what Mormons do, by the way. There's all kinds of secret rituals and practices that they don't tell you about until you're in. Okay, Christianity's not like that. We lay all the cards out on the table. We tell you the plain, true gospel of Jesus Christ, and you, you have to take it or leave it. And you don't go deeper than the gospel. The gospel is all that there is. There's no secret. We're not keeping any secrets. The same gospel saves everybody. And if you're saved, we're on the same spiritual plane. There's no such thing as a super Christian or level two Christian. Some people will tell you that. It's not true. If the same spirit lives in us that, that lives in me that lives in you, we're on the same level. There is no secret practice or mojo that we need. And so in this sense, Christianity really is that old-time religion. Because John says that we are to abide in what we received from the beginning. In other words, the core truths of the, the truths of the gospel, the teachings of Christ, and the teachings of the apostles, they're already set in stone. They're already written in the book. They never change. And so the point is this, is if you hear someone come and saying, I've discovered something new. If you read a book that says, I've cracked the code. You know how, many, you know how much money people have made on, on other people because they wrote a book saying, I cracked the code? It's unbelievable. And Christians buy them up like crazy. Because guess what? I want to crack the code too. But there is no secret. You want to know the secret of Christianity? Christ lived. Christ died. Christ rose again. He's coming back. That's the secret. 
That's the secret. And you can come to God through him and be forgiven of your sins and be welcomed into God's eternal family forever. That's the secret. That's the only secret. I've already told you. There's nothing else. It really is the old time religion. We don't have to. We don't need to look for anything new. Don't look for Jesus plus or Bible plus. Jesus and his word are infinite and already more than enough to captivate our hearts and minds for eternity. We don't need anything else. And so we live in the last hour, number one. Number two, the spirit of the Antichrist is at work. And number three, we know the truth through spiritual anointing. And so as I close, the invitation is simple. Do you know the truth? Have you caught yet the only secret that we really have? And that is that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. If you haven't, you can get in today into the family of God through the forgiveness of your sins through Jesus Christ by believing in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this truth that you